Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Breaking Down Mental Health, with myself, social worker, Saima Khan, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Heidi Burns, and nurse practitioner, Dr. Christina Spiner. We are joined today by Dr. Nasu Malis to discuss non-pharmacological interventions for the management of aggression in children. Dr. Nasu Malis is the service chief for child and adolescent psychiatry at the University of Michigan. He also serves as the medical director for the Pediatric Consultation Liaison Psychiatry Service at C.S. Mott Children's Hospital. He has leadership positions in emergency and consultation psychiatry with the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and American Association for Emergency Psychiatry, and was involved in developing the Pediatric Beta Guidelines on the Management of Agitation and Aggression. None of the speakers here today have any conflicts of interest or financial disclosures. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I uh, am excited to be talking on this topic. And uh, thank you all for highlighting a very important topic in pediatric medicine. We are excited to have you here. I think this is a topic that is uh, very relevant to a lot of different providers in the emergency setting. So Dr. Mollis, as a child and adolescent psychiatrist and pediatrician, you've worked in a variety of settings and see patients on a daily basis that struggle with aggression. Why do you think children and adolescents present with aggression? And what are some of the things we need to consider as medical providers when evaluating an individual with aggression? That's a great question, Dr. Burns. Um, I conceptualize aggression and agitation in a couple ways. One is I see aggression uh, somewhat like a sixth vital sign. So just like we conceptualize pain, as being a warning sign that there is some type of disequilibrium in how a patient is experiencing uh, their physical symptoms, we also can see aggression in that same light. So when we see a child or an adolescent become aggressive, we can see that as a state of disequilibrium where there are factors either intrinsic to the individual or in their environment or through interpersonal interactions that culminate together resulting in the child exhibiting distress and then manifesting that distress through physical action, through verbal action, or sometimes uh, through a significant emotional distress. I really like how you presented that as the sixth vital sign because sometimes we just see the aggression and don't really dig a little bit deeper into what's going on behind that aggression. Can you discuss certain diagnoses or neurodevelopmental concerns that are associated with aggression? Aggression is really such a heterogeneous presentation. One thing I think about in addition to that vital sign analogy is the fact that aggression presents along a spectrum. Kids typically present in a calm state, and then there are factors either with themselves or outside themselves that cause them to be at higher and higher risk of progression to agitation and eventually aggression if there is no stemming of that uh, progression and behavioral escalation. So kids can have physical symptoms that can contribute, so lack of sleep, hunger, pain, uh, chronic physical symptoms that can impair their ability to think, to process emotions, to regulate their behaviors, can all contribute. Uh, So there's a variety of conditions that can do that physically. But then emotionally, there may be conditions such as uh, experiencing uh, psychological trauma, whether due to abuse, neglect, or just experiencing a difficult life event 
that can cause youth to be more hypervigilant or easily distressed, less trusting. There can be other emotional symptoms like anxiety that can cause children to perceive an experience to be more fear-inducing than maybe other children, and they'll react accordingly. Some children may have impairments of their ability to kind of understand what's going on, may have social or developmental impairments. So youth with autism may have sensory experiences. They may not um, do well with transitions. They may not do well with certain experiences that children without autism may experience that may put them at higher risk for aggression in certain situations. Youth with ADHD may be a little bit more impulsive, more difficult to sustain their attention in a given task, and uh, can get stressed when they feel that they can't uh, manage uh, whatever demands are being placed on them. There are interpersonal factors that can influence that. So if there's conflict with a family member, a traumatic experience with another individual, a breakup in a relationship, if somebody can't manage those emotions and cope with them, that can escalate to aggression. So it's really a wide spectrum. And the bottom line is you really need to have a fundamental uh, framework to be able to understand how those factors physically, emotionally, socially, systems-based factors, how they all contribute to one's person's presentation of aggression. Thank you so much for that perspective. I, I think recognizing that it isn't just one diagnosis and oftentimes that agitation or aggression is multifactorial is really important to, to kind of look at that whole picture of, of what's going on with this youth that's triggering these behaviors and um, what can we do to support them. And I think that kind of leads us to, you know, I think a, a big part of why we're here and why we're talking about this. Um, but what are some of the non-pharmacological ways that medical professionals can support youth with aggression? So first off, I think recognizing that aggression exists along that spectrum and that it is something that can be multifactorial it is the first most important point. Because I think if we take a cookie cutter approach to aggression, it's not going to work. Just like taking a cookie cutter approach to fever, a cookie cutter approach to pain, it's not going to be helpful because it is so diverse in its presentation and the factors that contribute. So that awareness is important. Having a good conceptual framework to understand aggression is important. Screening for risk of aggression is really critical. That can be done formally, and there's some validated screens to, to consider. But a lot of times that's done clinically. Um, we have resources in the hospital where we ask uh, patients and families what factors cause them to be distressed, what are their typical comfort strategies, what things do they like to do? What things are can cause some distress or what words may even uh, generate some worries? And being prepared so you can develop a plan to really optimize those comfort strategies and minimize the distressing factors and then regularly checking in to assess how we can address that. Some common ways that we use uh, include uh, thinking about the environment itself. So is the environment creating a lot of distress? So for example, we had a, a young lady we were working with who couldn't sleep because the alarms in the room kept alarming all night. And we know that sleep and lack of sleep can be one factor that can cause people to be agitated or aggressive. So just monitoring sound, um, monitoring the lights in the room, 
monitoring the commotion outside the room or traffic in and out of the room, how often we're touching people, if particularly our, our population with autism, sensitivity to touch can sometimes be a, a trigger for uh, distress. And so being mindful of those sensitivities. And you don't have to have autism to to be sensitive to these um, sensory experiences. You can really have that with any condition that you're experiencing. Being aware of the language we use, how we're framing communications, making sure we're working with families to use communications that children and adolescents can understand, as well as really trying to utilize services preventively to enhance the experience. So we have a patient and family um, care council that helps think about that experience. We have child life that helps bring distraction tools to the bedside. We have robust psychological services to really enhance coping skills and support youth. And really it's thinking about mitigating those risks upstream rather than waiting for a crisis to occur. Dr. Mollis, um, you talked a lot about how we kind of mitigate agitation and get ahead and have a plan, but um, maybe we can just take a brief pause and talk about like us walking into a situation. This patient's already agitated. What are some non-pharmacological things we can do in that moment to kind of de-escalate the patient? So a lot of times when I'm in a situation like that, I, I try to reach out to the staff uh, or providers that are in that situation to briefly understand what were the antecedents that preceded the escalation, what factors did they see, and how did that escalate? Because I think understanding the factors that led to the event are really important to understand how to solve the issue. And you can do that very briefly. Uh, It doesn't have to be an extensive review. Uh, making sure you understand the basic principles of why the patient's there, because that really matters in terms of how you intervene. And then just from observation, looking at you know pupillary size or positioning of the body, uh, is there any grimacing? Is there any uh, overt signs of pain? Uh, where are people positioned in the room? Are there objects in the room that somebody could use as a weapon that we need to kind of remove? You know, what are the routes of entry and and exit from the room? So being cognizant of all those things right away. And you're doing that constantly as you're in the situation. And then usually I start off by validating the emotion that I think is being uh, shown, whether it's anger or frustration. um, Rather than going at this specific issue, sometimes by validating that, um, that can kind of bring the temperature down a little bit. And then presenting yourself as somebody who who is there to help. So I introduce myself. Um, it's good that people know who you are because if they suspect you're somebody else or don't know who you are, that can escalate the situation. I usually try to present my hands as open or in the front of me so people know that I'm, I'm not threatening to them or trying to hold them down. A lot of times uh, patients or even family may be reacting because they perceive that you're going to restrict them in some way or harm them in some way. I try to use a gentle um, tone in my voice and kind of use the uh, downward inflection uh, as I'm talking uh, so that people are welcome to respond back, Uh, but constantly kind of validating the emotion, the frustrations, the difficulties they're experiencing, and just saying that you're here to help and you want to understand what's going on. 
sometimes as you're trying to de-escalate, it's also important to direct what's going on in the room. So if there's a distressed family member, uh, if if they're not contributing to the de-escalation, having them step outside so maybe somebody else can get information from them or help them cope through the situation. If they are helping de-escalate, they are a partner, and you can ask them what typically helps in these situations to help your child or adolescent reach a more calm state. Uh, and you can kind of go through those strategies. Sometimes we create behavioral plans in advance that we can review and, and utilize some of those strategies. Um, and so again, prevention is key. But then I am constantly uh, reflecting when I'm in that situation about how the patient's responding to our conversation and to the interventions we're employing, trying to use uh, strategies like relaxation strategies to help people uh, calm their body and their mind, but then ultimately recognizing if things are getting out of hand that we need to reach out to our, our other partners in care, whether it's uh, our security officers, um, nursing leadership, other physician leadership, to get a team-based approach uh, and recognizing that sometimes we can't do it alone. Thank you. And I think kind of earlier in this conversation, we alluded to that none of this can be cookie cutter, but there are responses that we can have that we know kind of work a little bit more globally. And um, we need to kind of adjust based on that response that we're seeing. Um, But kind of going a little bit further into this being a diverse evaluation, what are some of the biases and misconceptions that providers have about youth with aggression? So uh, that's a, that could be a whole talk in and of itself. And I think the research is still growing in this area and frankly was a, a blind spot, I think, for a lot of us for a long time. We are seeing that uh, black youth are being restrained uh, more often in ER settings. Um, We still don't fully understand why that's happening. Um, We do know that uh, sometimes youth who have a history of aggression um, may be subject to increased medication use rather than other non-pharmacologic strategies. And so what I typically think about when I think about stigma and bias is how can we eliminate that. It's hard to eliminate it completely, but how can we minimize it is maybe a better word to the lowest extent so it's not influencing care. And I think that's where standardization of care can be really helpful. We have a clinical practice guideline in our health system that standardizes who's involved, how we approach care, how we escalate supports, what types of medications we may consider, what types of uh, strategies we use to support families uh, during that that period of distress. Uh, and then we couple that with education because I think if people are informed and understand, they're not driven by fear and fear sometimes results in us, you know, using our biases or stigma to kind of compartmentalize or understand a situation. And so being able to educate folks on mental health issues, substance use related issues, issues um, related to physical health and aggression. An example, in our hospital, we've been doing a lot of education around delirium and understanding that people can get aggressive in the setting of delirium where they may not initially 
uh, show signs of delirium, but it's really because of physical illness that they're aggressive, really helps reduce some of the distress and also helps people function off of a better understanding of what is going on with the patient. Um, but I, I, I do think it's a huge problem. We still need to do a lot of research in this area, but I think the solution is to standardize our practices along best practice and also to educate our, our colleagues uh, on what the risks are and where those risks are coming, coming from so people understand that. Yeah, I think it's it's been nice to see sort of this greater discussion about bias um, in healthcare, and you know, as a in the emergency setting, I think trying to have conversations even outside of those trainings and educational moments with your colleagues and with staff about potential bias interactions and you know debriefing after episodes happen where where you know someone has a concern about a bias um, I've been seeing more and more of that kind of in my my daily work and that's been exciting to see that that people are actually having conversations but you know sort of just thinking about the fact that we can all be a part of that conversation and we can all you know instigate that um, and and reach out and try to have it be something that's normal and usual that we talk about, I think, is is also something notable and that we can all kind of participate in. Yeah, and I, I think there are certain populations where there may be more misunderstandings. And so, you know, I, I referenced our, our community of youth with uh, autism. There are organizations that create safe spaces and safe practices around the care of youth with autism with some standard practice and some standard tools that you can use. Um, substance use is another population where when one's intoxicated, they can behave and think and um, interact in a very different way that can be quite dangerous. Plus, they are also physically in an impaired state that can be dangerous. And, and so there are certain subsets of populations where uh, creating specific protocols or specific approaches can be really helpful. And just like I said, you know, creating awareness uh, of aggression risk and thinking about prevention is really important in general. Uh, creating awareness for specific high-risk populations that may be subject to, to some bias or just misconception of how to, how to support and manage those populations can be really helpful in terms of being proactive in uh, addressing aggression risk. Yeah, I think it's really important to be aware of those biases. And, and I think taking that individual approach of kind of thinking of what are the things that kind of led to this youth presenting in this manner, I think being aware of those emotions. I think so often the children and youth that we work with that are displaying agitation or aggression aren't aware of their own emotions. And um, putting a, um, a name to that, you know, being able to, to give them some control over that can really be helpful in a situation. I think we forget that the hospital can be a really scary and uh, distressing place for uh, children and youth. They may be experiencing pain. They're in an unfamiliar environment. Um, they're away from family, friends, comfort items, and so, so kind of being mindful about those things as well. You know, pivoting a little bit, um, Dr. Malas, I'm hoping um, that you may be able to walk through a few case studies with us focusing on the non-pharmacological interventions that a provider could implement to help an individual with aggression. Uh, so let's say we have a 10-year-old male with autism spectrum disorder presenting to the ED with a possible tick bite. During the lab draw, he becomes aggressive towards himself and staff. 
What are some things that staff could do to avoid aggression or help support this young man before, you know, the escalation occurs? And what are some of the things that staff could do using non-pharmacological interventions now that he is agitated? So in that scenario uh, with a, a, ch- a school-aged child with autism and a physical impairment that's getting distressed, I think we would go back to those principles we talked about earlier. So being aware that the child has autism, it's important to not have that child in a box. So understanding from the caregivers or whatever family is present with uh, that child what things distress them, what things uh, may comfort them, uh, what things can we do uh, preventatively uh, in advance of any escalation to really reduce that risk. So for example, we have a lot of youth that if they get their iPad, no matter where they are, they're fine. That iPad is taken away or they don't have it, that can be a really significant factor. So how how can we problem solve around that? Or Maybe they watch Frozen frequently. You know, I'm not marketing Frozen, but it, well, any show. If they watch any show and and uh, it's something they love repetitively to watch, just putting that show on can sometimes cause them to, to de-escalate. Uh, in addition, we talked about the environment, so trying to create a room that's quiet, that has limited sensory uh, stressors, uh, some There are some tools that can be used to actually create positive sensory experiences for youth, whether that's child life bringing in some of those activities or uh, having rooms that are adaptive that can uh, be customized to the child's needs. Uh, thinking about how we use language, certain words, certain framing of language can be very triggering. Some youth like to be aware of what's going on, some don't. Uh, some like to hear from their caregivers what's going on, being aware of that, and then trying to have uh, some type of written uh, plan in the chart. Uh, sometimes what we'll do is create a brief behavioral plan that we communicate to the nurses, to the staff, sometimes put a sign on the door that indicates the child has uh, some specific uh, unique needs to support them. So that way, providers don't come in and inadvertently escalate the situation. And I think by by doing that, you know, managing the environment, engaging the family in preventative strategies, employing resources to enhance comfort and reduce triggers, as well as our language use in the room, is all helpful. And then, you know, engaging with uh, behavioral supports, whatever those may be. It may be social work, maybe psychology, maybe psychiatry, maybe child life, uh, in helping with de-escalation. So some of that may be counting, some of that may be relaxation strategies, some of that may be sensory-based. It really depends on the child. Uh, And also just learning as you uh, are spending time with a child, observing them, what's working, what's not, uh, and then supporting that by documentation. Because one of the biggest challenges we have as a provider community uh, is not documenting well. Uh, so we, we see aggression, but nobody knows why it happened and what worked, what didn't. Uh, did we debrief? Did we not? All that's lost. And if we can just spend a, a couple minutes documenting 
those types of things. It can really help as we both track how things progressed and what worked, but also to uh, help prevent future events because we know a lot of youth and families return to the ER or to the hospital. And uh, we can also plan ahead uh, if we're collecting the right information. Thank you, Dr. Mollis. I think I have two thoughts I want to share about um, what was brought up in about this scenario. So the first being um, throughout the scenario, we know that this kid is agitated now. And you referenced um, learning as we go and managing these cases. And I think it's okay, like, you know, blood draw comes in to get these labs and this kid freaks out and we haven't done X, Y, or Z. It's okay to back off. And let's get this kid calm. Let's reevaluate the situation. Let's talk a little bit more with family. How can we support this kid um, during this distressing situation and try something again instead of just continuing to pursue whatever needs to be done in that moment medically? Um, and th- my second thought is that there are a lot of kids we meet in the ER and in other settings that have uh, needle phobias or fear of that that poke. And our hospital, as you know, we're well aware of around this table. Um, has something called a poke plan. And that's where we make a plan with the family ahead of time of how we handle pokes and uh, immunizations and any other of those procedures that require a needle stick. Um, Things as simple as, do you want to sit on mom and dad's lap? Do you want to hold their hand? Do you want to watch a movie? Do you want music on? Do you want child life here? All these different things that can just make things a little bit easier. And that goes right in the chart. So just like we reference having the information about how to handle agitation and aggression in other settings and other situations, we do that um, across the board for our kids who struggle with needle pokes. So kind of jumping into another scenario now. So we often hear and see um, young children presenting to our ER for aggression, particularly when it's been occurring chronically at home or at school. What advice do you have for support of a child who's being aggressive at school? And what evaluation should be done? Is there some intervention that staff and parents could put into place while awaiting a formal evaluation? Yeah, that, that's a challenge for many families across the country, and uh, schools can be valuable partners in thinking about and addressing risk of aggression, as well as um, creating plans to manage aggression if it does occur in the, in the school setting. Uh, you know, first and foremost, it's important to determine the overall needs of the uh, child or adolescent. So there may be needs related to physical functioning, um, whether it's toileting, ambulating or walking, uh, eating, uh, things of that nature where understanding those functions can help uh, the school adapt the environment to be conducive to that child's experience. Because we know if a child can't meet their needs, that aggression may be a way that they communicate that distress to others. And you can do that in a variety of ways. So there is something called an individualized education plan that you can pursue in public schools or uh, commonly known as an IEP, where if you write a letter requesting an IEP evaluation, the school is required to do that evaluation within a certain time frame and then uh, provide accommodations if the child meets criteria for an IEP plan. 
additionally, there's something called a 504, which also allows for accommodations even if you don't meet criteria for an IEP. Additionally, uh, the primary care provider can be a great partner with the school, uh, especially if you don't have mental health services in place. If you do have mental health services in place, still primary care is very valuable, but you want to include your psychologist, your BCBA, your psychiatrist, social worker, case manager, whoever's involved, to meet with the school to talk about what the child's needs are. So first educating those key school personnel about what's going on with the family involved, and then thinking about what plans need to put in, be put in place. So are there modifications to the daily routines? Are there aids that need to be provided to the child and identifying um, uh, what services are needed in the school? So some schools will offer physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy. Some schools actually um, will have behavioral therapists come in and do something called a functional behavioral analysis where they observe the child and see what factors escalate their behavior, what factors help calm them, how, how often those behaviors are occurring in the school. There are also ways to adapt the curriculum for the child. Think about um, what types of things uh, can be adapted in a hybrid fashion where the kid may be able to do some online work and some in-person work. So there's a variety of ways to manage that, but the critical thing is to um, really advocate early and utilize your other uh, community supports, whether it's a primary care provider, mental health providers, other supports in the community to advocate with the school. Uh, and then lastly, there are resources in the state uh, through the Department of Education where if you are struggling to navigate the school supports around any type of behavior, including aggression, there are school advocates that you can reach out to and hotlines you can call where they can guide you or troubleshoot with you. Um, but it's really critical to start that process and explore what types of testing are needed and what types of adaptations are needed in the school environment. Thank you, Dr. Mollis. I think I personally have had a lot of experiences with parents coming in in a, in a really desperate place with their child with um, aggression chronically. And being able to just give them any sort of information um, about the resources that they have outside of the hospital can be really reassuring and helpful. So that is very, very good information for us to have. What about another scenario that often occurs where we have a young person come in to the emergency department already in an agitated state and often in the setting of having used a substance or had some sort of ingestion or for whatever reason they're in an altered mental state and they're having aggression or agitation at the same time. That's a common scenario that we experience in emergency and other urgent care settings where somebody presents in a highly agitated, aggressive state, maybe impaired cognitively, can't provide a lot of information. So you still do a cursory assessment because the assessment needs to inform the management. Like we said, again, you can't take a cookie cutter approach. Um, sometimes the information we get is very limited. So initially, maybe we may need to stabilize the patient because we don't have much information and the severity of the aggression requires 
some level of stabilization of the situation before we can do our assessment. But the goal is always to um, stabilize and calm the patient and not just uh, cause sedation because sedation limits your ability to assess the patient, understand what's going on. But then um, based on that cursory assessment that you're doing, we'll want to think about what uh, areas of potential need the patient may have. So I, in a very simplistic way, I think about it as is the primary issue a physical issue, physical disease? Is it a substance-related issue? Is it related to development? So um, a social developmental issue like intellectual disability, or is it related to a primary psychiatric diagnosis of so somebody's psychotic, somebody's presenting with severe psychological trauma and is dysregulated uh, because of that? Kind of thinking about those buckets. And then I would um, look at the evidence-based guidelines that exist where expert panels have come together and thought about the interventions to use, whether it's non-pharmacologic, pharmacologic, uh, and, and maybe some assessment. So thinking about those buckets, if you think it's a substance use related issue, can you get some additional labs uh, in the moment or do some physical assessment to kind of target, is the person intoxicated? Are they withdrawing? What those substances may be so that we could either use antidotes that are likely to be high yield or using agents that might be helpful. In a lot of those cases, it may be uh, quick pharmacologic management. For a kid with sensory issues um, related to a developmental need, it may be pairing non-pharmacologic intervention around the environment and what's occurring with pharmacology. And, and one of the pharmacologic strategies we use a lot of times in kids with developmental need or with primary psychiatric need is using what they're currently on from a medication standpoint and giving an extra dose of a medication that could be used as an as-needed medication or uh, giving half of an extra dose or making sure they even got their medication for that day, but then pairing that with some of those non-pharmacologic interventions that we talked about. Uh, the goal, again, I think is to quickly assess and not skip that assessment. Make sure we have a general conceptualization of what's going on. It doesn't have to be exact, but I think this patient is delirious because X, Y, and Z, and so I'm going to give a medication that helps to manage delirium. The, the problem is, is if you don't go through that quick thought process, you're very apt to deliver a medication that may actually exacerbate the situation. And then it's hard to tell, are you making the situation worse or is the patient actually getting worse? And so having that conceptual framework, even if it's basic, even if it's based on very limited information is helpful. You intervene based on that conceptualization and then reassess. So you can't just give a med and just keep giving the same med or keep uh, using the same strategies if the patient's not responding. And so it's it's one of two things. It's either that the intervention is not robust enough or more commonly, it may be that we're missing something about our understanding of the patient. So that reassessment uh, is really, really critical. And I can't hark on this enough documentation so that there is a, um, a record 
of what that thought process was and what we did because the next person that picks up uh, the case or the other members of the team can understand what has happened and what we need to do going forward. Thank you so much, Dr. Mellis. I think that really, you know, provides us a great overview of, of ways that we can support patients that present to our emergency departments, our medical systems with agitation and aggression. Before we wrap up today, is there anything else that you would like to share with us? Well, you know, this kind of was alluded to throughout the presentation, but really aggression management requires an interprofessional approach. We are really better together when we work together and think together. Uh, our nursing colleagues, our, our staff, um, you know, social work, psychology, uh, child life, our you know, physicians of all disciplines. Uh, you don't have to be a psychiatrist to manage aggression. A lot of our emergency room uh, physicians, a lot of our pediatric hospitalists, a lot of um, physicians in, in a lot of disciplines are managing aggression and agitation and can do it very effectively. Uh, it's really something that's quite systemic. Uh, that's why I use that vital sign analogy because really it's it's everywhere um, and we just have to be prepared. And to be prepared, we really need to ut utilize our full extent of resources, which is that interprofessional approach. So just wanted to really emphasize that because this is something that really requires that team-based approach. Thank you for joining us today. We truly appreciate your time and expertise. Thank you to everybody who tuned in this week. Next week, we will be again meeting with Dr. Mollis and discussing some medications and their various uses. For nurses, social workers, and physicians, you can claim CMEs and CEs at uofmhealth.org slash breaking down mental health. You are able to do this at any time within three years of the initial air date. We hope that you will join us next time.